I'm Lena Taylor. Welcome to Next Level Tips. I believe that one of the most valuable skills is the ability to transform obstacles into opportunities. All of us face challenges and setbacks, but how we show up for ourselves in those defining moments is what we talk about in this podcast. Get inspired with these stories and create the opportunities you've always wanted. My guest today is Beth Brooke. Beth has been named 11 times to Forbes' World's 100 Most Powerful Women list, and for a very good reason. Her advocacy work in equality and inclusion are a legacy to our world. There are numerous incredible accomplishments that you will find when you do a Google search on Beth Brooke, but we start our conversation with a story that you probably won't find a foundational story, a pivotal moment that is the goal that takes shape below the surface, the character-building events that we talk about in this podcast as being the crucial building blocks of later success. Beth was the Global Vice Chair of Public Policy at EY, one of the big four accounting firms, overseeing the firm's operation in 150 countries. She was the first woman board member of EY's global board, working on some of the biggest issues facing corporate America in rebuilding trust. During the Clinton administration, Beth was recruited to work on healthcare reform, and this is where she saw the potential of how remarkable changes can happen if business and government work together. Today, Beth serves on the board of the New York Times and several other purpose-driven organizations that she sees as important agents to bring positive change into the world, including the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Another head-turning segment in our discussion of sponsorship versus mentorship in career advancement is something that you'll hear in our conversation. Beth discloses invaluable tips on how to get a sponsor and the role that each party plays in that relationship. Listen until the end of the episode to see why Beth says that success is not good enough and how she challenges herself to look at the world with curiosity and align her highest values and the change that she wants to see in the world with the projects and organizations that she works with. And now, here's Beth telling us the story of that pivotal moment in her life that helped form her mindset that shaped the trajectory of her life. You know, I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indiana, but when I was 13, my hip fell apart. Um, I have a kind of a little half moon that sits there in your hip socket and mine came loose and detached and sort of went down my leg. It, and it, so when it happened, it, it happened slowly, like over the course of nine months. So I, of course, thought I had cancer because it was happening gradually and, and I didn't understand it was actually something wrong. Never told anybody, actually. I just mm-hmm. kept it to myself, didn't tell my parents or anything. And finally, after softball season that summer, I just almost couldn't, like, I was just dragging my leg around, but I was still fine. It was just painful, excruciatingly painful. And, and finally, my mom, I just said, like, like wait till softball season's over, because um, I couldn't hide the pain in the summer anymore. So my mom took me to an orthopedic surgeon that afternoon, after, you know, softball season's ended, and 
And I'll never forget standing in the little room and the doctor comes in, it's just my mom and I, and the doctor comes in and he looks at my mom and says, I'm so sorry, um, but your daughter's likely never going to walk again. Mm-hmm. And I looked and my mom just burst out in tears and I grabbed, because I'm thinking I'm getting the cancer diagnosis. So I grabbed my mom by the shoulders and I'm like, but mom, I'm going to be okay. And she's like, but you're never going to walk again. And she's crying. And I'm like, but I'm going to be okay. You know, so we had very different reactions because my mindset was I had cancer and was going to die. And the diagnosis was I'm going to live, but I just never walk again. So I was, you know, in that moment, euphoric. My mom was not. So I went in for emergency surgery that night and um, laid there for two weeks in the hospital, couldn't move. And so, you know, two weeks later, I'm supposed to get out of the hospital in a wheelchair and um, never to walk again. And and in into my hospital room marched my mother, my father, our, our family doctor, and then the surgeon who did the surgery. And the surgeon walks over to my bed. My mom's crying, but I knew something was up surgeon walks over the bed and says, I'm so sorry, I screwed up. And so then my family doctor discloses that the surgeon had, they had inserted five steel pins, but none of them attached to anything. Like they just basically had just botched, completely botched the surgery. So I went back in that night for another surgery with a different surgeon, another two weeks in the hospital, get to the end of the two weeks, and I'm ready to be released. And the, the, you know, so I'm all ready to be released. I'm like, I'm not going in this wheelchair. Like put me on crutches. I have one good leg. Like I don't need a wheelchair. I'll be on crutches. And so fast forward. So every night at home, I would lay in bed and I had this rope and I would, I would lasso my, my foot. And then I would do leg lifts every night, just trying to make my leg work. I just, at 13, I just figured I could get it to work again if I worked hard enough at it. And lo and behold, after about six months, my leg actually started to have feeling and it, it, it started to, to work again. And I, again, I didn't tell anybody. I don't know what was up with me, but I didn't tell anybody. And then I started on my crutches actually putting weight on it. And so anyway, I don't know, at some checkup, I went to, you know, to the doctor and, and I'm in the office and, and you know, he comes in and I just hand the crutches to him and I walk across the room and because I knew I could. And he's just like, what? And my mother's like, what? You know, and um, so anyway, long story short, uh, 23 years later, the surgeon who did the first surgery had was convicted of malpractice. So he was a horrible surgeon. He had misdiagnosed that I would never walk again. It actually was capable of repair. The nerve was capable of repair and it did. And, and so it wasn't like some big miracle. It was actually misdiagnosed the first time and the second surgeon did his job and it actually did work. So long story short to the pivotal moment that instilled in me a belief that I could do anything Mm -hmm. if I just worked hard enough, you know, if I just worked hard enough, put my mind to it, I could do anything. So I I don't think I fully appreciated that, that at the time, but clearly throughout my life that has stayed with me that if I just put my mind to it, anything is possible. So then, and, and when I left the hospital that second, that after that second surgery, I looked at the the good surgeon, I looked at him and I said, not only am I going to walk again, I'm going to be the best damn athlete you've ever seen. And, And it's when I committed to actually 
quit playing at sports and get serious about sports. So, you know, then went on in high school, you know, four sports, four MVPs, you know, and just, and then played basketball at university uh, and then started my career. Uh, and, and I, again, I was, I was a computer science major and, and I kept interviewing with companies, not being thrilled with, it looked like too slow of a culture. Like you had to wait until the guy ahead of you died to get a promotion. And it just didn't feel right to me. So I, um, um, ended up my, one of my professors said, go interview with one of the accounting firms. They're very different. I'm like accounting. He goes, you took all your electives in accounting. He goes, you, you're, you could sit for the CPA exam. I'm like, I don't want to be an accountant, but okay. And so I went and I interviewed and within a half an hour, I'm like, that's my culture hmm. because it was very entrepreneurial. Take as much responsibility as you can handle um, you know, it, you don't have to wait for the guy ahead of you to die to get a promotion. It's like, there's just, just, if you, it, you can do it on your own merit. And that resonated with me as an athlete. I'm very entrepreneurial by nature. So I'm like, that's my culture. Now I got to figure out what being an accountant is. And, you know, and so I, anyway, I joined and fast forward, I did that for about 15 years. I was a, a tax, I was a tax expert and I ultimately got transferred to Washington, D.C., I ran our national tax practice. Then I got recruited to join the Clinton administration in the first um, administration of Bill Clinton to work on healthcare reform and got to lead the president's effort on Superfund reform, the cleanup of toxic waste. So just a huge pivot, again, a pivot moment of the government experience opened my eyes to, wow, this is how social change happens. And it could really happen if business and government worked together, which they don't. And the cleanup of toxic waste, one of the reforms I led, really showed me how business and government could work together if somebody worked hard enough at it. Um, so that's when this public policy bug kind of got in my head. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to EY, I didn't want to come back because I said, I, look, I love the firm, but I don't want to be a tax expert anymore. Like, it's not what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, I had a couple opportunities to go be CEO of a couple of little, little companies and the firm convinced me to come back and the chairman just said, look, I don't know what your job's going to be. I don't want to, I don't know what I'm going to pay you. I don't know what your title's going to be. I just want you on the senior team. We're going to go through tremendous change. I won't make you do tax ever again. I just want you on the senior team. And I'm like, and he goes, just trust me. And when he said, just trust me, I reflected back and I thought for 15 years, this guy's given me no reason not to trust him. Mm. So, okay, I'll go back. Um, so I went back, um, did strategy work for the firm and then Enron happened and Enron was a major accounting scandal, which upended our profession. And we went from self-regulated to regulated uh, overnight, becoming almost like a financial institution. And I stepped into this public policy role that didn't exist. It's like, I called the chairman. I'm like, the world as we know it has just ended and, and we're going to be a completely different entity. And, and I don't even know what I was doing at the time in terms of a job, but I quit doing that and stepped into a role that I knew we needed, even though we didn't have it. Um, and that was really the, then the next, you know, the next decade and last decade of my career at EY was really working not just for EY, but with the other six major global accounting chairmen of the firms 
to, to try to rebuild trust and credibility in the profession and to work with regulators, new regulators around the world and governments to try to bring a profession that had really lost its way um, into major transformation and, and back into to where it is today. So that's, uh, and, you know, and I had some really interesting sponsors along the way that helped me get from the Midwest to Washington, D.C., and then obviously a chairman sponsor who got me back from the government. And so some critical people along the way. So those are pivot points. That's an incredible trajectory, what you're describing, uh, just from that moment of, um, we call it to total despair, right? When your hip goes out and you think, you think you're dying of cancer, your mom thinks you're never going to walk again from that situation. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me in that particular story, there's so many things I want to go back to in what you just described, but just going back to the beginning, but in that particular story, you as a 13-year-old, thinking, not putting those limits on yourself, is that a quality that you have seen and believe is the transformative missing piece in how real change happens? Oh, I think so. I, you know, I encourage people to think bigger, <laughs> always think bigger. And, and I think athletes, you know, it's the beauty of an athlete is they, they don't self-impose limits for the most part. I mean, that, that's, that's the discipline of perfection and getting better and quest of an Olympian to, you know, to, to the ultimate, you know, which I do think people self-limit a lot. Um, and women in particular, because of lack of confidence, society undermines them in, in some overt ways, some in, you know, hidden ways. Uh, but yeah, I, and I think that's the beauty of people that surround other people is to help people think bigger, uh, to, to encourage them, to push them. Uh, entrepreneurs suffer from this to some extent, um, especially female entrepreneurs, that they tend to self-limit. They, they grow their business. The statistics would show that they grow their businesses to a certain size and then that's good enough. That's more than they that's more than they thought they could do. It's providing them what they need, perhaps in terms of income, et cetera. And then you have to encourage them, think bigger. Look at what you've built. Look what it could do. Think about the platform that you have and, and how it could scale to be bigger. And you you sort of have to help get them to the next level level to get beyond that. Maybe it's self-limiting or it's just good enough. You bring up a really interesting point, um, because I believe at 13, you didn't have the conditioning, right, that maybe your mom had or the doctors or society had at that time, which allowed you to think bigger and to think differently and to not limit the possibilities. There's so many things that I relate to in this story, because I was growing up in communist Bulgaria at the time with the borders still closed, thinking that I want to come and create a life in the United States. At that time, when I said that dream out loud, it sounded like I'm talking about walking on the moon. That's how ridiculous it seemed. Yet there was something inside of me that said, continue to pursue that and find the way, despite what the circumstances are dictating to you. Now, what you also bring up is that later in life, we do tend to start looking at our opportunities and say, you know, this is maybe good enough. And there are some of the conditioning starts to show up and what society is imposing. And the point that you bring up is how you can break through that barrier 
with the help of a team around you that really can see your true potential. And, and I think you refer to that in terms of sponsorship, you know, going into government and then going back into the enterprise. So how do you, um, what do you think is important in order to cultivate those kind of relationships? You know, the, the limit, what you described, I think is interesting is because when you're young, you, you don't have those self-limiting beliefs. So, so your, your question really is how do you, you know, how, how does, how do you maintain that? How do you keep that? And, and, this, the sponsorship, these relationships that you, you mentioned are just so important um, because we oftentimes, we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what is possible that others know is possible. Um, sometimes we don't see ourselves as clearly as others see us. And so that's why I think, you know, it's why I'm, I'm actually, I'm not a huge fan of mentorship at all. But I am a, and I, but I think sponsorship is absolutely critical. The relationships in a sponsor, and the difference being, mentorship is, I think, an excuse for doing nothing, which is trying to coach someone, trying to help them, trying to help demystify the black box that they're trying to break into. I mean, that's all. It's important. It's good. But I think people get mentored subtly every day by just the people around them if they're open to picking up the cues from people because people are by nature good people and they want to help others. So they're subtly mentoring people around them all the time. A sponsor is quite different. A sponsor is what you described in my mind, which is someone who knows the opportunity and sees what you're capable of. Hmm. and 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 then gives you the visibility so that others start to see your connectivity to that opportunity. Um, because oftentimes the the people who are going to open up this opportunity to you don't know you. You're not visible to them. You don't even know this opportunity perhaps exists or you've self-limited to think I'm not qualified to have it. And the sponsor helps bridge the synapse, you know, and, and, and create the connections to create visibility, help others see your potential. And then you've got to, you know, you've got to, 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 to walk through the open door and you've got to succeed, but that's okay. The sponsor helps to make those connections and, and makes it happen. So I think, I think those relationships are really important. Your question, how do you, how do you get a sponsor? Number one, you become invaluable to those around you. I think operating with that premise of how do I do what I do in a way that I become invaluable to those around me? whether it's my job or whether it's just in life, how do I, just that mentality, how do I become invaluable? Because if you become invaluable to people, they're going to want to help you because you're invaluable to them. So that to me is first and foremost, if you become invaluable to people, sponsors are going to find you. Hmm. They're going to find you because you're invaluable to them. And that, that is how you create those relationships. And do you then at, at, times have to ask that that person if you know could you think about what else I could do could you you know you can ask some questions to plant that in their mind of what you want to do to show a willingness that you are thinking bigger you want some help 
then that's okay. Um, but that question has to come once you've become invaluable. If you ask too early, the sponsor doesn't have the relationship with you to be willing to invest the political capital. So um, I think a lot of people sometimes um, try to shortcut it and they sort of ask too early and, and it just doesn't work. What I'm hearing you describe is absolutely beautiful. I think you're talking about a shared responsibility, which is how sponsorship, you say, differs from mentorship. Mentorship, it's almost like, well, here's some tools and, and skills and different things that you can do, puts all of the responsibility on the mentee to take the initiative, to take the different steps. But a sponsor, from your description, also has a part in taking partial responsibility, just like the chairman told you, trust me. This is how he was saying, I am going to be accountable and responsible in this relationship, just like you will be accountable and responsible for the other side of the equation, which is what you're talking about, to make yourself invaluable. So it really is a question of shared responsibility. This is beautiful. I've never heard it described in that way. Well, and it doesn't end, um, you know, once, so that example of the chairman being my sponsor, which he was to get me to come back to the firm, just, you know, it doesn't stop there. So when I come back to the firm, I, I'm the first woman on the board. That's a pretty uncomfortable place to be, you know, the first woman at the most senior decision-making body of the firm. And I will never forget my very first board meeting. And I, of course, thinking I'm all spiffy, I'm on the board now and I'm all excited, you know, and I, I go to my first board meeting and they're debating, we, we are debating an issue that the firm's about to make a major decision on. We debate it, debate it, debate it. And I stay quiet. I'm, I'm just listening, listening. And, and I realize we're about to make this decision. And through the whole discussion, I'm just like, I just think this is the dumbest decision we're about to make in the world. I don't understand. Like, I think our people aren't going to like this at all. Um, so I get up my courage to, I'm at the end of the board table. I'm kind of at the end. I lean forward, excuse me, have a, I have a question. And so, and I, so I thought I very diplomatically said my point of view of why I thought our people wouldn't resonate with the decision we were about to make. And here's what happened in the boardroom. I'm, I'm down here at this end. Every, every head almost together goes. And they just stared at me in silence. And I thought, I, I, you know, I clearly, I mean, I almost jumped out of the window. I'm like, I clearly don't belong here. I don't belong, I don't belong, I don't belong. You know, sponsorship. So that chairman, took responsibility, number one, to weigh in and go, you know, it's an interesting thought, you know, we hadn't thought about that, to then after the, you know, pull me aside and go, you know, it's, it's, you've got to express those points of view, that's why you're here, you know, that, and, and to talk to the other guys about that's why she's in the room, she's not always going to share our point of view, that's what a sponsor does, so a lot of times, especially for women, women get put in a role, and then the sharks come out trying to help them fail, you know, a sponsor helps you succeed um, and helps helps pull out the shark gun and, and try to control the sharks. So how do you how do you cultivate that sense of belonging that I'm sure that, you know, at first you were on. Um, 
it, it, it's not natural, right? To feel like we belong in a situation where everybody looks different from us. Everybody acts different from us. They even think differently from us. How, how do you do that for yourself? I tend to be sort of a diplomat in, in the way I approach situations, which, um, which means in my language, meet people where they are. So I try to work really hard at meeting people where they are, which means understanding their point of view and then understanding why they have that point of view. Mm-hmm. What, what has led them to that point where they believe what they believe? And because if, if I'm gonna have the courage to express a different opinion, it's really helpful if I can start by acknowledging their opinion. Oftentimes in a situation of conflict, the way to deal with conflict and tension is to let the other person know that you heard them. Mm. They don't need to be right necessarily. They'll accept that you disagree. They just want to know that you heard them. Mm -hmm. And so often people, to your point, to express a courageously different point of view, just express a courageously different point of view and in a way that's kind of bombastic and puts the other person off. That's not going to create a sense of belonging. That's going to create a sense of me versus you. Mm -hmm. I disagree with me versus you versus this is about us. We have a shared goal. We have a common goal and you find that common ground, that common goal. But I respect where you are and, and I understand, you know, and so you, you, you got to meet them where they are and let them know that they've been heard and then start to walk them back as to why you maybe think differently. Um, but you will, if you can do the first part, you'll express your view much more respectfully to where chances are you'll be heard. That was in the last you know, decade of my career in public policy. I mean, that was my life just being a diplomat around the world and making sure if you're going to deal with somebody who you either is regulates you, is, uh, doesn't want you to succeed, doesn't agree with you. I mean, you can't go about it any other way than meeting them where they are. And because you've got to do your hard work of understanding why they think the way they think, because it's just the way they think. It's not wrong. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's the way they think. And you have to stay objective. Um, and, and I think if you do that in relationships, whether they're with people you work with or people you're friends with, it, 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 the same thing holds true. Absolutely. It's just so powerful to let someone know that you understand where they're coming from and for the other person on the receiving end to feel like they've been heard. So those are just really powerful communication, negotiation skills that sound like are applicable. And it almost becomes a state of mind. I think also what I'm hearing you describe, it becomes a state of mind. How do you approach the world? You don't approach the world in trying to impose your beliefs or the things that you're thinking. You approach the world in a way that you try to understand where people are coming from and then very diplomatically walk them back. That's why I like to that's why I like to say, um, to like, especially when I'm talking to like college university kids is listen more than you talk mm. because you can't meet people where they are. You can't 
uh, let them know they've been heard. You know, if, if you're talking more than you listen, you'll never figure out where they are. You know, like it, and and listening is such a, a, an additional critical skill to what you're describing because if you talk too quickly, uh, express your point of it, you're, you're just going to put everybody off. So it's actually where I think introverts um, have an enormous advantage in this world. You know, we so often celebrate extroverts, but I actually think introverts have an enormous advantage because they listen really well. That's true. So thank you for um, joining me today. I just wanted to ask you one last question, uh, which is what's next for you? <laughs> um, well, I retired from EY, mandatory retirement, about 18 months ago, and I'm now on um, a few boards of companies that, and my lens for decision-making to join those boards is I'm, I only want to do things that make a difference. That's just how I'm driven, very purpose-driven. And the four companies that I'm on the boards of, they're very purpose-driven. I mean, the, in their various spheres, they have the opportunity to change the world or lead the world. Um, and, um, and in my nonprofit world, I sort of apply the same lens of, of organizations that I get involved with. So the nonprofit world, you know, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, I'm, I'm proud to be a, a part of and really um, respecting the, the platform that Olympians have as an inspirational force to unite this world in a way that I, you know, one of the rare opportunities. Um, as an organ, I'm on the board of the New York Times. I, I you know, I, I think with the, the um, distrust in news media today, with the polarization of the world, the iconic brand around trust that the New York Times has is such an asset right now to, to understand what is it going to do with it. So just a couple of, of examples of, of things that I'm doing. Um, but that's the lens. So, And I'll tell you, I struggled for probably six months to a year with where am I going to spend, where do I want to devote my time? And I had to try some things on for a while um, in order to understand where I wanted. And so like I have a huge commitment to social justice and diversity and inclusion. Like how am I gonna do this now in my post EY world? So for example, one of the boards that I've joined is a company called Tricolor Holdings and not a real sexy business. We sell used cars and we finance the used cars. So we give loans also. Our customer population is the Hispanic community mm -hmm. solely. Um, half are undocumented immigrants, no credit scores, no ability to be included in the financial system at all. So we have so refined how to underwrite loans to that community in a way where we can do so at very low interest rates. Mm -hmm. So not the usurious interest rates that most that they, they usually get charged. I mean, we do it um, very, very uh, fairly to that population and then help them kind of um, develop then of credit scores and things to where they can go on and be included financially. So those are an example of how I'm kind of trying to manifest my social justice now of, of things I can get involved in. Oh, that's, that's just absolutely beautiful. And, and aligning that with your own core values, right? And taking the time to really explore what matters most to you and then coming up with, um, there's a, a really interesting episode that I watched um, a while back, Oprah Winfrey 
um, many, many years ago was interviewing Nelson Mandela when he came out of prison, became the prime minister of South Africa. And this is the question that she asked him, you know, Mr. Mandela, what was the most important thing that happened to you during your time in prison that allowed you to make that transformation? He went into prison as a rebel, emerged out of prison as a leader. And, and this is exactly what he said. He said, I had time to contemplate. So just like we have time when we're all about accomplishment and outward achievements, taking this time that you're describing over the last six months to a year to really look inside and see how things can resonate so that when you are on the boards of these organizations, it can really align with your core values. Uh, I think that's just a beautiful expression. Well, and I sum it up, so many people have heard me say, is something my dad used to tell me, which is success is not good enough. Success is not good enough. Um, translate that to what we were just talking about. You go on any board you want, okay? That, that's success. That's not good enough. My dad would say, use that success to do things that are significant. And if they, they're making a positive difference in the world. So I apply that lens to... Okay, so you know what to say no to. <laughs> if you want to do things that are significant, you know what to say yes to. And that's sort of my lens. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Lena. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Next Level Tips. You can find more information on lenataylor.com. Please subscribe to Next Level Tips and join me each week for a new conversation with leaders in business, science, and elite sports. We talk about the defining moments that shape our lives and the skills to transform challenges into opportunities. I'm your host, Lena Taylor, a two-time Olympian in beach volleyball and leadership coach. Thank you for listening.